Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 11th episode of the Calcium Podcast. I'm Patrick McKenzie, here with my noted co-host, Keith Burhack, and our good friend, Jason Winder, uh, CEO of Make Leaps here in Tokyo. Hi, I'm Keith, and welcome to the 11th episode. I can't believe that we got this out literally one week after our last episode. So This is downright scary. This is scary. It's this almost is... like we have an actual podcast. I uh, don't jinx it. All right. Cool. Welcome, Jason. Thank you. Hello. I appreciate the welcome. I always look uh, at you guys doing a podcast from behind a, a thick plexiglass window and I think, geez, that looks really warm and cozy inside that little podcast igloo. Uh, so thank you very much for inviting me in. It's a pleasure to be here. We're happy to have you from outside in the cold. So Sure. Well, we have a, an air conditioner. Right Which here. hopefully you guys cannot hear. Otherwise, <laughs> our editor is going to be very, 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 very angry at us. In All right. fact... Should we turn it off? Well, yes, I, I tested. We were testing a little bit ago, and it sounded okay. So I think it's. Going it to be sounded okay. Yeah, meaning it didn't sound. You okay. couldn't set hear it. Yeah. You couldn't hear it. Okay. Okay. So uh, we'll be talking about a few different things this time. Uh, so Jason has a, a SaaS business called Make Leaps. Why don't you just give us a little bit of background on what that is for people to have some context, and then we'll talk about uh, recent adventures in it. Certainly sounds great. Um, Make Leaps is the best and shortest uh, way to describe it would be a fresh books for Japan. Uh, so essentially an online platform that helps Japanese freelancers and businesses more easily create and send their uh, invoices, whereas right now pretty much everybody in Japan uses Excel and they do it all manually, which is crazy, and we're on a mission to fix that. Awesome. So as of a couple of months ago, you guys are uh, funded out of a few Silicon Valley movers and shakers. You want to tell us a little bit about how that came to pass? Sure. So around about one year ago, I had the good fortune to meet Naval from AngelList, who's a good friend of mine in Tokyo. So the first time I met Naval, he asked me a series of questions about Make Leaps because, of course, he's interested in the Japanese startup ecosystem. I answered all of those questions, of course, and then at the end of that conversation, um, he very generously offered to uh, be an advisor, which was very nice. So we thanked him for that. And then the next time he came to Tokyo, I actually got a chance to see him again. And he said, yeah, so what's happening with Make Leaps? Where is everything going? I said, oh, it's great. You know, we've got this traction and we've just hired this guy. And we've just go, got this partnership and this deal and blah, blah, blah. And uh, he sort of looked at me and said, you know, can I ask you a few more questions about Make Leaps? And I said, yeah, sure, of course. So over about 30 minutes, he asked me a series of about 20 rapid fire questions, which I found very fun. They were all on point and interesting. So I responded. And then at the end of that, conversation, he uh, said, wow, well, you know, that all sounds pretty interesting. If you would be open to it, I would really be interested to invest in Make Leaps. And up until that point, taking funding and investment had been kind of an amorphous idea that like we read about in TechCrunch, but like actually having an offer from one of the top most well-known people in Silicon Valley offer to invest in Make Leaps is kind of like Michael Jordan saying, hey, would you like a, a game of basketball? You'd be crazy to say no if you even like basketball a tiny little bit. So um, that began a process where we started thinking very deeply, myself and my co-founder, Paul, like, you know, what do we want to do with Make Leaps? How do we want to manage it? Do we want to take on investors? And, you know, that was quite a complex uh, discussion that we had over quite a, a long time. But the more that we thought about it, we sort of realized, well, if we really want to build a big, important, meaningful business that's going to affect a lot of people in a meaningful way, funding is going to be critical, is what we essentially ended up realizing. And I realized that, you know, the bootstrapper method is absolutely legitimate. And we did that for four years. So I'm not at all detracting from that at all. I think that's a great way to go. But we had a position where we could get some very well-known people on board and on our team for Make Leaps. And we decided that it would be a great idea. So, yeah, we went ahead and did a, a funding round of $750,000 that uh, closed a few short months ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of the participants for that were uh, Naval, uh, Dave McClure from 500 Startups, Eaton Shah, a few others. It's funny, there's a, uh, so these days there's a mechanism called a syndicate on AngelList, which um, might be new to some of you listening to this. So typically in the, in the days of yore, three years ago, a funding round for a uh, seed stage investment like this would be done by, say, some collection of between uh, 5 and 10 or 5 and 20 angels, each investing a check of between, uh, typically the minimum for an angel investment was about $25,000, uh, below which it wasn't really 
worth anybody's uh, pain in like getting the deal put together. And so between twenty five thousand and say a hundred thousand on the high end, and then you would uh, you would put together two hundred fifty thousand to five hundred thousand uh, dollars like that. And uh, one of the emerging models on AngelList is that um, uh, various smaller angels who don't want to do deal flow management for themselves, which means they don't want to go out in the world, find the people who are like Jason, convince them that they should be allowed to invest in the company. They want to sort of outsource the deal flow management to somebody else, outsource a lot of the vetting of the deal to somebody else that they trust, but be able to invest some money in the startups that that person invests in. They can follow them on AngelList in a way that is not like following somebody on Twitter but uh, make a, an informal commitment to invest in um, startups that they invest in called a syndicate. And then, then some magic happens, and I'm not really sure what the magic is, but my understanding is that AngelList makes some sort of vehicle where the, the syndicate can each put money into the vehicle, or is it uh, AngelList just brokers the arrangement and the angel invests directly in your company? So the way that it works in practice is... There's a person that has a syndicate, like you say. So there's maybe um, anywhere between two to a hundred people that are following a syndicate. Then the syndicate lead will say something like, okay, guys, I'm going to make an investment into this company. Here's what it looks like. At which point, depending on AngelList settings, and I'm not sure about this, um, it's either opt-in or opt-out. So if people want to opt into the deal, they can say, yep, we agree with this deal. It looks great. So I'm in. Or if they want to opt out, they can say, you know what, I'm just not interested in this space or something like that. So they can opt out. So with that in mind, it's actually kind of interesting. You don't actually know if you're leading a syndicate, the amount of investment money that you can get until you actually decide to lead a syndicate and see how many people join. But I mean, any person that's running a syndicate who's fairly well known that says, okay, you know, we trust these guys and we want to invest into them, that's a very strong signal where exactly as Patrick said, if you've got some spare cash sitting around from Google stock share sales or you know something like that, you can say, you know what, I'll just throw in behind all these people. Uh, and then what actually happens is if you're an entrepreneur on the other side, you'll, you perhaps might start to trend on AngelList and you start to get a lot of attention and people start to follow you and people might start to say, hey, can we hop on the phone for a call? At which point you lose a tremendous amount of sleep if you're living in the Tokyo time zone because they all want to call either very late at night or super early in the morning. So you're a bit of a zombie for a little while. But then, yeah, hopefully you can close enough deals on the phone or you can get enough people interested in investing that you're ready to go and you can pull together your funding round. And we, we got very lucky. We set out to raise $400,000 and in the end we ended up almost double oversubscribed at $750,000, which would have not have been possible without AngelList, especially because we're trying to do this remotely. And, you know, there's already some difficulties where, you know, somebody can't drive from Sand Hill or wherever they happen to be living in San Francisco to come and visit you guys in Japan. That's a little bit difficult. So there's a little bit of extra, I would say, latitude that we have to spend a bit of extra time and effort in trying to assure people that we're good people, you know, sure we're doing this in a foreign market, but it's B2B SaaS. It all looks pretty similar. The numbers are similar. The market is huge and exciting and all the rest of it. So you basically close a syndicate deal. And then what happens is there is a single line on the cap sheet in respect of that deal. So all of the angels invest into a holding company and then that holding company actually makes the investment into your company. Um, so you get a single wire and a single name on the cap table and that's it, you're done. You don't have to chase people to sign agreements or do any of that kind of stuff. All of that is done and fully managed by AngelList, which makes having 60 investors a cakewalk. It's simple. All of a sudden you get a, a big wire of cash and a single entry in your cap table and that's it, you're, you're completely done. So that was pretty transformative for us and it's just moving forwards is just not going to make sense to raise money using something other than AngelList it just makes it so easy uh, and straightforward so that's a glowing recommendation I ever heard about yeah, um, <laughs> yeah this, it was great this is particularly true for uh, folks who might be raising from smaller angels or angels who don't have a strategic profile to them for example if you're uh, someone who previously has some successes as an angel or as an entrepreneur and is known to have the capability to open doors then uh, a startup like Make Leaps or another startup would be crazy to not jump through, you know, any hoop you put in your way to getting a check. You, well, 
given that it's a you know relatively reasonable process. So if you require a custom document, you know, custom like negotiation of the terms of the agreement, as long as it's something reasonable, uh, there could be like you know founder time invested into getting a twenty-five thousand dollar check from you. If, on the other hand, you're like J random product manager from Google, you don't particularly have any uh, successes behind you, and your main capability of contributing to a business is the ability to contribute a, a check full of a, a meaningful amount of money, but not a gigantic amount of money, then startups, particular startups in demand, don't really have a lot of uh, reasons to spend huge amounts of the time on the phone with you when they could be spending huge amounts of the time on the phone with either a better known angel or their customers or employees trying to move the business forward. Mm. I'm curious. So moving the, moving the amount of pain, like the transaction cost of doing business with you down uh, opens up more deals to you, uh, which is probably one of the reasons that the angel list is going to eat large segments of the angel fundraising market, particularly on the uh, you know, low, less established end. Absolutely. I mean, it's either click, click, and you're done, or click, click, phone call, send a document, like get somebody to sign it. Did they sign it? Oh, well, they just went on a holiday for three days. Like, uh, you know, try to call them again, but they're not around. So you need that document to close your. It's just, or click, click, you're done. So it's very clear that click, click, and you're done. The, the way that AngelList has made this very possible and simple and easy is just, yeah, it's, it's great. I can't recommend it enough. I think it's also easier for the investor as well because you don't have to jump through all the hoops as well. You have to, you don't have to vet it as well as you would if it was a one-on-one. You have other people. You have that kind of social proof working for that as well. I, I think it's a lot easier for people now to invest as well as be invested in. Right, and we're not trying to convince anyone out there in podcasting land to uh, to become an angel investor because it isn't. Just the mathematics of it uh, are exceptionally unfavorable unless you already know what you're doing and you have lots of money to burn. Yeah. Um, but be that as it may, it's a uh, even knowing that the underlying math was uh, was difficult. The like actual mechanics of doing angel investing two or three years ago were a little painful. Uh, I have two very small angel investments, and because there, you know, there's actual like contractual language involved, we have to run it by a lawyer, and I was. Uh, Let's say that I spent a high, high portion of my very small check size just on having a lawyer like go look over four pieces mm-hmm. of paper and make sure that I wasn't like giving up the general store in those four pieces of paper. Yeah. And that wasn't really something that I wanted to do. It wasn't something that the startup wanted to do. It's just like, okay, we're professionals. We both have uh, different bases of IP, which we want to mutually you know, know is not going to cause problems for anybody. So the lawyers will be involved. And with AngelList, if everyone is using substantially the same paper, which has been vetted by Angelus, you know, presumably top tier VC, uh, yada yada firms in uh, legal firms in San Francisco, then there's less uh, sort of like legal risk involved with uh, that paperwork. Very true. Uh, what's interesting about the whole process is you can choose the set of documents that you want to use, <laughs> right? So if you're raising, say, four hundred thousand dollars on Angelist, people will see that as okay, they're raising four hundred k, they've got over 50% committed, and they're using, let's say, Y Combinator safe uh, documents. It's like, oh, okay, that's very clear, very easy to understand structure, it all makes sense. And there's different kinds of safe documents. So you can pick the kind that you want and say, okay, here are the base default documents that we're asking everybody to sign. And that makes things easier as well. Like in when we did our round, we had a, an investor or two say, listen, you know, the terms are good, but you know we'd like this favorable term or something like that. And when you're doing an AngelList syndicate and you're already almost double overcommitted, it becomes very easy to say, okay, we appreciate that you'd like to be involved. You want this favorable term. However, we're already double overcommitted and everyone assigned documents that do not include this favorable term. So if you'd really like to be involved, we'd love to have you involved, but the documents are the documents. So it becomes very easy and straightforward. To say that negotiation becomes very simple because everyone signs the same documents and away you go. So what Jason's saying about favorable terms is sort of important. There's uh, traditionally in angel investing, there's a few axes that the deal can move along. Move along. One is you know very simple, like what's the, well, it, it isn't. Aspirationally, like what's the price this deal is being done at is something which is fairly uncomplicated, uh, which has not always been true. But you can imagine, like, using very simple, simplified math, if I'm willing to buy 10% of the company for $10,000, that puts a value of the company on $100,000, which is much lower than any company would actually be valued at, but simplified math. 
Um, so, you know, those two numbers, uh, which has sum up out the price of a deal, are one way to evaluate the deal. But there's other terms that might be involved with uh, exactly how the math works out in the event of an acquisition or a down round or various other things in the company life, like say whether you get liquidation preference. And investors typically would, well, a liquidation preference is typically in the interest of the investors, uh, not really in the interests of the uh, firm. Certain liquidation preferences are borderline, I'd say given the current climate in the valley, they're borderline abusive, uh, which doesn't mean that they were never signed because a few years ago, uh, people were both, there was not the understanding in the entrepreneur community that a you know 3x liquidation preference is not a market term. And also uh, just supply and demand, people were saying, well, I will only give you my money if you include a 3x liquidation preference. Like Jason said, if you're oversubscribed and the funding round is happening with or without someone's particular $25,000 check, you can say, look, uh, the term that we've negotiated with everyone is a, for sake of discussion purposes, like a 1x liquidation preference or no liquidation preference. And that's kind of the deal. You can choose to do this deal or not do this deal, but we're not going to negotiate uh, consequential terms like that with you. Right. And the way that we ended up saying it was, listen, um, for us, it's very important to keep good relationships with all of our investors. And if they found out later that one investor got preferential terms over everybody else, then that's kind of a big serious issue. There was a point that I, I needed to make that was fairly important. And that was, you know, the way that we ended up responding to people who asked for preferential terms was, listen, we'd love to have you involved in this, but we don't want to make a situation where the other investors feel like they got a bad deal or, you know, any one particular person out of, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 people didn't get that same deal. So in the interests of keeping uh, good relations between Makeleaps and all of our investors, we'd really love you to sign the standard documents. And then that's very simple and easy. And then you can be involved and that'd be great. If that's difficult for you, completely understand, no problem at all. Please let me know what you'd like to do um, is the way that we handle that. And that was very smooth and successful and uh, an easy way to explain what we were doing and why without treading on anyone's toes. This is incidentally something which is useful, not just in negotiating investment, but in negotiating all sorts of contracts and something that your vendors will occasionally do to you. Uh, A, if you're selling like say SaaS where there was an actual like physical contract in play, that isn't just the standard contract of adhesion. So presuming you're selling on uh, you know, several thousand dollars of services every year uh, to companies you should probably have like a template agreement, which you uh, you give to all of your customers. And your first negotiating position can always be, well, our standard offer is blah. And if they say, well, we would really prefer, you know, some term in there that which is uh, more favorable to us than what you have right now. You can say, well, this is the standard thing we offer to all of the customers at the level of service which you're currently willing to sign for. If you want to upgrade to our super duper platinum enterprise thing, we could discuss individualized contractual language with you. But at the $1,000 a month level of service or at the $2,000 a month level of service, uh, we really encourage the use of our standard terms. And then maybe you win that deal, maybe you don't. Uh, but that's a a negotiating tactic that you can do and which is fairly low risk. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, if you're speaking from a position of strength where you have other customers that are signed up to that same deal, you don't need that deal to make your rent payment or something like that, then mm -hmm. it's very easy to do just to say, listen, here's the deal that's available right now. If you can sign it, great. If not, no problem. Best of luck and hope to run into you again in the future. Um, is a very strong negotiating position to be taking. Mm -hmm. I... Uh, had something this month for appointment reminder where I'm trying to get uh, business associates agreements, a particular type of uh, paperwork signed between appointment reminder and all of our medical customers. Well, many of them had already signed it, but some of them were kind of waiting on it. And so I basically have gone out to the folks who are still on the uh, not signed state yet and said, look, um, we have a standard BAA ready. I've prepared it for your company. Please sign it immediately. And some of them are saying, well, uh, we have to run this by process A, process B, and process C. Most of these are not large accounts. And I've, my position has been, you have neglected signing this contract for a while, which puts us both in technical violation of, uh, of some regulations. So this really needs to get done this week rather than be being done after the lawyers get through with it. So our current documents work. We know they work. Would highly encourage you to just sign the current document. And what I find a lot, especially in consulting, is that it's just what you said, Jason, is, is talking from a position of confidence and power 
and okay, I'm going to be able to make my rent this week. Do I really need this contract if they're asking for all this stuff? And what I've really found is that the more concessions you make, the lower kind of your status becomes, right? The, the more power the, the client has and the more things that they're going to demand of you in many cases, not all of them. Um, so I think always working from a position of power and, and from a position of, okay, this is standard. This is the way we do things. And like Patrick said, if you want extra things, it's going to cost this much mm-hmm. or adding that on and negotiation. What a lot of people don't realize negotiation is two way street, mm-hmm. right? It's not someone telling you what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. You need to work out what's beneficial for both of you so that you're both on an equal footing, right? The, the magic words for negotiation are a mutually, mutually beneficial agreement. Exactly. Um, and like Keith was saying, sometimes I think people who are maybe a little closer to us in uh, mindset uh, think hear the word power and they get a little scared about it. So maybe if you think less of like it being a power relationship and more about you having a mentality where this is one deal out of a universe of many abundant deals that are going to happen over the course of your business career. And given that you do not need this deal to close, you're in a position to hold out for you know terms on the deal that make sense to your business. And to say, okay, if the terms of the deal that are being offered right now don't make sense for the business, then we will shake hands, we'll part as friends, and maybe we'll do business in the future, but not under terms which don't make sense for me in, in the present moment. Well, of course, I mean, the classic negotiating idiom is, you know, two people want an orange. One person wants the skin of the orange and one person wants the inside of the orange, and then somebody cuts it in half and says, okay, you both get half, where both people could get 100% of exactly what they want <laughs> if they talk about it a bit more so, I mean, and understand really, you know, each other's goals and what they're trying to do in trying to divide an orange. I mean, geez, geez, just buy two oranges is yeah, what I kind of think. Actually, listening to that idiom again, <laughs> but anyway, like from that position, yeah, you know, I think it's always good to understand your negotiating position against somebody else's. But I guess yeah, let's not get into too far into negotiating theory and all that kind of stuff. But it's interesting. So one thing I want to ask is, okay, so you're a Japanese company. You're completely founded in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've been running in Japan, you're towards the Japanese market. Why Silicon Valley for funding? Good question. And I suppose the best answer is because Silicon Valley came calling. You know, Naval from Silicon Valley, you know, came over, got to know us, met us, found out a lot of information about us and offered to invest. And so from that perspective, we could have gone out and aggressively looked for Japanese angels and, you know, done an angel round that way. However, the Japanese angel ecosystem is not 1% of what it is in Silicon Valley. I mean, mm. I recently had a trip to Silicon Valley um, or San Francisco and I checked into my Airbnb and I walked outside and literally ran into a Make Leaps investor completely randomly <laughs> on the street, right? And I, I'd only actually met him via like video chat. Uh, we had two video chats. And so he walked past me and I was like, oh man, I'm pretty sure that that's Tom. <laughs> but I was like, do I go over and like accost him and say, hey, do you know who I am? <laughs> <laughs> right? And so of course that's what I did. I'm Australian. I can't help it. And I went over and I said, hey, do you know who I am? And of course he uh, you know, responded as though he was about to, to be mugged. Um, <laughs> he took a step back and I was like, no, 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 no. We're, I'm Jay from Make Leaps. He's like, Jay. I'm like, yeah, Tom. He's like, ah, right. So like. That is kind of the sort of thing that you can experience in Silicon Valley. If you walk outside in Tokyo, you will have to throw a lot of rocks before you'll hit an investor or an angel investor, right? It's just not so common here. And as Dave McClure says, angel investors are the limiting factor to any startup ecosystem. And I kind of agree with that. The the value that you get from an experienced angel investor to give you advice and capital and point you in the right direction is really super invaluable. So, you know, we found that a lot of people, once we did the syndicate round um, through AngelList, a lot of people became interested in Japan and the Japanese market as well they should. Japan is still 15% of the entire world's GDP, mm-hmm. right? It's still mm-hmm. the third largest economy in the world full of affluent businesses and consumers. It's a really exciting space mm-hmm. that, and, you know, so people see this opportunity and it's rare that a company, especially run by foreigners, is really aggressively just focusing on and targeting the Japanese market. So I guess because of that, we got also a little bit of interest from people who have always been interested in Japan and you know wanted to find a way to get into Japan a bit more, and we became that opportunity for them. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I think the understanding of uh, investing investors, VCs, angels, service providing firms, companies, entrepreneurs, etc., are an ecosystem is really important because all of these things are interconnected. So, for example, the not only does Japan have fairly few angels who have operating experience in technology companies, it has few enough um, uh, technology companies in the sense that we mean the word technology companies. There's many tech firms in Japan. Most of them are not SaaS firms. Right. I mean, in fact, I would have difficulty naming maybe five Japanese SaaS firms. Yeah, uh, it's not a common model in Japan. Not a common model yet. Uh, and so there aren't people who have successful exits at these firms who then turn into uh, angels and start uh, giving money to the next generation of entrepreneurs, um, even though that's probably the same generation of like actual people. There's not the sort of um, established best practices here for people who can like, you know, there's understanding in the market in Silicon Valley that a SaaS firm that has particular metrics, you know, a, uh, a churn rate of 2% is really, really good on month to month SaaS, for example, is something that there are probably on the order of like 20,000 people in San Francisco who could tell you that off the top of their head. Where in Japan, you could probably go to a lot of professional angel investors here and ask them to define churn rate and have them be unable to answer that question. I agree with that. Yes, mm-hmm. that's true. So, but we have, I think the three of us all have high hopes for Japan over the next okay. uh, uh, short period and in the long run on uh, both having successful exits, um, you know, having this information percolate through. Uh, the various channels, both Japanese and Japan resident foreigners, and uh, hopefully having the market mature a little bit more here. So what what I've seen, and this could be, so I, I'm the only one on the room who doesn't live in Tokyo. We're working on that. We're working on that. I got one of you guys to come to Tokyo. It's just <laughs> yeah, a matter of I'm time number here. two, right? Yeah, <laughs> it, it's true. I'm in Tokyo largely because Jason is here. He, yeah, he and I have been good friends for the last four years. Also, it's Excellent. Tokyo, so it's it's, Tokyo. It, it does have a lot of benefits. Tokyo over, is not uh, Tokyo for everybody. Although yeah. Tokyo is Tokyo for me now. Darn it, darn it, Jason. You're <laughs> that's right. deep. That's deep. I think. It's true. I'm so glad you're here. I think, I think you need another drink. Um, <laughs> but um, I did want to ask. So when, when I think of a startup, so me being not in Tokyo, not as much in the scene, when I think of a Japanese startup, what I'm really thinking of and what I see a lot of are Japanese megacorps who have that SaaS division. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of a, a lot of companies that like Recruit. Recruit yes. has a ton of SaaS companies, divisions. Yeah. divisions. Intrapreneurs. Right, exactly. They're, and they're very different than a bootstrap or a SaaS that's going to be invested in because they're owned by a giant multi-billion dollar company, right. right? Right. And it really changes the landscape. So there are very few investors. It's more, and companies do not buy SaaSes here like they do in the States. Yes, there's mm-hmm. definitely a lot less exits and acquisitions mm-hmm. in Tokyo, much to the chagrin of all of the angel investors, especially foreign angel investors, mm-hmm. right? Like you, you will see a company like Recruit say, okay, we've identified a need in this market. Let us build a solution for that market rather than acquire the established current leader of the market that's going really, really well, and then we'll put $20 million behind their marketing campaign, and boom, now we're number two or three or one, depending on the market and the company, which is not great. Um, But then again, I mean, you don't necessarily want to look towards giant companies in Japan to really support the startup ecosystem. It's just not uh, not a good strategy. I had, um, so I, I work with a lot of marketing companies, especially in the Nagoya area, and for the last four years, I've been really pushing for A-B testing and analytic testing and stuff for marketing tools in Japan. And I was talking to literally the largest um, digital marketing firm in Japan. And I was like, yeah, you know, they have all these great tools, visual website optimizer, Optimizely, all these things, crazy that you can use to test. And they're like, yeah, we know. We're really pushing hard to create our own platform to help our customers. I'm like, why don't you just help your customers by... Like introducing a tremendously successful yeah exactly it already like, works right now yeah exactly. it's like why do you want to build I mean I understand why they want to build the competition but it's like you could be helping them now and build that on the side but it's like we're not going to touch A/B testing we're not going to touch marketing until we build this tool it's still not built that was four years ago of course and, of course, that, and that's yeah. what happens right and right. so now they're late to market and yeah, of course. yeah. people mm-hmm. underestimate complexity uh, in software. Mm-hmm. Endemically, right? right? Especially in Japan. It's like, oh, it's software, just just, just somebody build it. Easy, done. Yep. And especially for um, invoicing, right? Like a lot of people will have their own solutions or a lot of people will be considering, okay, do we go with make leaps or do we build our own solution? 
And the way that I look at this is very similar to, um, let's say, an infrastructure question where somebody says, okay, well, Gmail looks pretty good with your 500 of the most qualified engineers on planet Earth, 100% focused on this 24 hours a day, but I really want to be able to control my own infrastructure. It's like, okay, so what would you like to do? It's like, well, instead of using an established platform run by literally the smartest people on Earth that are qualified to do this exact kind of thing, I want my own server. It's like, great. So when there's a problem at 2 a.m., 500 of the smartest people on Earth are not focused on your problem. (laughs) (laughs) They're eating free lunch, you know, because today's Mexican day at the Googleplex, right? Like, that's great for them, but you're screwed because your your email server is offline for four days and your business stops. So it makes obvious sense to Japan has has a huge thing about not built here. The thing is, we have a ton of smart people, and we have a ton of smart people who love solving hard problems. And they love solving hard problems. And that's not a bad thing at all. That's a great thing, especially for new IT companies in Japan. The problem is that they would, a lot of people would rather be solving those problems than using a solution off the shelf that just builds the, that solves the issue, that solves yeah. the business need, right? Right. There's also, I find in dealing with the larger Japanese companies that when they, when they've identified an entrepreneur said that, okay, this person has put in, uh, 20 years at the company, they're a known quantity. We're going to stake them with um, a few million dollars of budget to build a you know competitor to Optimizely or Visual Website Optimizer. They don't think of what Optimizely and Visual Website Optimizer were when they started. You know, something put together by one person or a very small team thrown together in six weeks and then exposed to the market for feedback. They think, no, no, we're going to we're going to try to skate to where they are today, and with you know several tens of like person years of engineering effort involved yeah and okay well if it takes you know 50 years uh, person years of uh, engineering effort to get to where this is today that's all right we will hire 25 engineers and we're going to put them on the project for two years and then two years from now we will be where optimizely is in 2015 we will release our unmarketable product uh, As- <laughs> aspirationally in 2017 they'll be they'll be almost where like optimizely is in 2015 as, <laughs> That's right. as as experienced by someone who doesn't really understand the product because they've never actually used it in anger. and i think a lot of people are listening right now are like oh no it's not as bad as say i have had literally three japanese clients last year that this was exactly their problem they would not mvp it i was like the contract was for an MVP. We work out a, a thing and it's like, okay, take this to your client, start selling it, and then we'll start building the next one. And they're like, no, no, we have to have all the features. It has to be complete, like, it has to have the bells and whistles, like invoicing and all this stuff before we even show it to our potential customers. <laughs> so here's like an interesting theory on this that I heard recently, which I kind of agree with and I think it's fascinating, is Typically, Japanese companies and people approach software the same way as they have successfully in the past approached hardware, right? And we're a hardware company or a country, yeah, yeah, exactly, right? Like, so people, you can't show someone hardware that's twenty percent complete because that's zero percent complete. Hardware is binary; it works or it does not work for its intended purpose. And people try to apply that same idea to software, and it just doesn't work in twenty. 15 now. Yeah. I almost said 14, but it's 15 now, right? Like, it's, it just makes sense to roll out something that works to fulfill the purpose that it's built for, and then you iterate from there. It just makes there's, sense. there's two comments I want to make. The first one is that um, there's this great Dilbert cartoon where the boss is saying, measure twice, cut once. And Dilbert responds, well, when the thing being measured is infinite and the cost of cutting is zero, <laughs> it makes more sense to measure once, cut once, and then, then iterate quickly. Yeah, yeah. But it doesn't work with hardware. Right. And I keep telling this to all my American friends or my, my Western friends in general, and I'm like, and they're like, oh, Japanese IT I, um, software must be so amazing. I'm like, no, it's not, because you think Japan, you think electronics, and that's true. But electronics are not software. Electronics are hardware. You look at all the hardware, all the electronics that have come out of Japan that have been amazing, and they're all hardware-based. The Walkman, the CD, the CD-ROM, Lasers, PlayStation. Oh, my God, PlayStation. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> um, Word processors, uh, the toilets, we're, it's I all hardware. Oh, God, I love my toilet. Anyway. <laughs> um, it's all hardware. It's very true. It's all hardware. The software in Japan, you look even at a simple website, it's horrible. Yeah. It's, I mean, with exceptions for maybe embedded programming and uh, video games. But yeah. yeah. We, now, That's about th- it. <laughs> this is interesting. Um, we do, we built an OS back in, I think, 85, mm-hmm. I want to say that is the kernel level OS for 
pretty much 90% of ATMs in the world. But it's so low level. There's no user interface. There's no nothing. It's built on top of We build tools. We build hardware. We build things. When you say we, you're referring to, to Japan, Japan. I, which is interesting. I, I've been here for 12 years. Almost my entire business career has been in Japan. Yeah, I, me too. Yeah. yeah I had... I worked at an internship and then I worked at a startup during my college years in America and mm. then I moved out here. And so it's like yeah. your formative years. In I Japan. know, I know. Yeah. And I, I, I wonder if it's hurt it's hurt me. Like I have a people tell me I have a very different thinking about business than Western. So I, I like it. I think it's a it's a good way of thinking, but mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we all bring our own unique experiences to our work and all the rest of it, but in much the same way. I mean, I came to Japan when I was 19 to originally study martial arts, um, and now I'm running a SaaS business. So, yeah, I mean, Japan has been, I think, an interesting country for us both to, to grow in, because you've yeah. been here for 12 years? 12 years, yeah. yeah right. How old were you when you first came to Japan originally? Uh, was that 22? Yeah, yeah right. something like that. Interesting. Yeah, cool. How about you, Patrick? You've been in Japan also for a long time. Yep, about uh, 10 years and change now. I think I wow. came over three months after university ended and I've been here essentially for the duration. Uh, so yeah, all of us have careers which are heavily shaped by uh, our time in uh, Japanese organizations or in foreign organizations that were operating in Japan. And uh, it probably, I think it's a pretty fair statement to say that if you took a look at like the a day in the life of one of our businesses, it would not exactly look like it would if we had grown up in like Tulsa or Brisbane or uh, yada yada and had the business grow up with us there. Yeah. Sure. That's true. Well, San one, Francisco. I mean, one thing that kind of blew my mind was I had to return to Australia for a five month period. So this was maybe, geez, going back like seven or eight years. So I had to run a business from Australia and I had to do some business in Australia. And what struck me was just how simple everything was. It was so straightforward, <laughs> right? Like I needed something, I make a phone call and I have the thing that I need. Or yeah. I, like, I need a contract. It's like, okay, boom, here's what we want to do. It's like, all right, we'll sign here. It's None done. of the huge back and forth. And, oh and it's like, what the hell is this? Like, I, I had like two things to get done today. It's 10 a.m. and I've done three things now. Um, so it kind of blew my mind I, I had how a straightforward it was. who would not discuss anything over the phone or email. It had to be wow. in person. That's like, sucks. he was like, we cannot come to an agreement on things except by meeting and talking. Like, there's no way to come to an agreement over email or a phone call. And that's the magic of SaaS business. <laughs> when every single one of your customers is paying you $20 a month and somebody says like that, something like that to you, you can delete account. You can say, yeah, well, you know what? That sounds great. And I'd love to spend the next six months talking about your $20 a month account. But no, yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. no, no, no. So that's an interesting segue. So you actually, um, like we said earlier, there's very few uh, SaaS companies in Japan uh, operating at uh, any sort of scale. Most of them that are U.S. transplants, like Salesforce, does very, very good numbers mm-hmm. here. Yep. Many U.S. enterprise companies do good numbers by merging the traditional enterprise sales culture of the U.S. with uh, the stuff that works in the Japanese market. Yep. On the low-touch end of things, there's not that much. Yeah. Um, so what have you done with MakeLeaps that's been successful at getting thousands of paying customers on the, uh, on the lower-touch end of things? Well, one thing that's kind of interesting in Japan, I would say, is incredible an incredibly high level of customer support in Japan's table stakes. Mm-hmm. That does not set you apart from any of the other companies in Japan that also have an incredibly high level of support. So, Can I jump in with an anecdote there that happened please? to me today? I go to a hair salon and I've been there maybe twice uh, since moving to Tokyo. The young lady who cut my hair both times is moving to a different branch of the same hair salon in Tokyo. She sent me a two-page, honest-to-God, handwritten letter thanking me for coming in and visiting her twice and getting my hair cut, giving instructions that I can give the next person who cuts my hair, and directions to the new hair salon where I can find her if I want to travel 15 minutes out of the way to get my hair cut. (laughs) And I will be getting on that train to get my hair cut, obviously. But you can imagine, this is somebody who's, like, the... Per visit value is what fifty sixty dollars for a salon haircut here, and that's a level of care that most SaaS companies that have account values in like the five thousand dollar a year range do not send handwritten letters to their customers saying, Absolutely. "Hey, just dropping you a line because we like you." Absolutely, yeah. That's if you do want to send them, I I recommend MailLift. MailLift, yeah, MailLift is a um, handwritten letters by API. 
Does it work in Japanese? It does not work in Japanese. I but see. great SaaS <laughs> idea for anyone who wants to start a, a handwritten API. I, that's a good point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, and that, I mean, there's actually a bit of a problem in Japan right now, I think, where older workers are not able to assimilate into a lot of the newer roles that are being created as certain sections of industry are phased out. So something like that would actually be a really interesting idea to look after the rapidly growing section of Japan, which is the older seniors. Um, as we all very likely know, uh, recently adult diapers finally began to outsell baby diapers yep. in Japan, which is terrifying. <laughs> and and it's only going to get worse. That's very true. Um, that's only the start of the trend. So yeah, there's a lot of potential business opportunities for older people in Japan, for sure. I, I think it, it's interesting, though, because I wondered about doing a mail lift version in Japan. Mm-hmm. And the thing that convinced me against it was that why would a company not just get their OLs or their, um, their I guess, window watcher is the best English term, the marogiwa, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Why would they just not get them to do it? Well, there's actually companies that uh, they don't have the API piece. The API piece is what scares me because you would have to convince companies on integrating an API to get business, yep. which is not something many Japanese companies are very keen on. Considering but they don't understand the word API. API. <laughs> you can say but integrates with Salesforce. Integrates with Salesforce. But there's companies in... Uh, there's even at least five of these in Ogaki where uh, the company is typically a printing shop or something where they have the traditional you know, mass scalable printing equipment there. But they also have uh, essentially little ladies who will handwrite uh, documents that you take to them. With the idea being that certain classes of documents in Japan can't really be printed and still have the same kind of heft to them. Personal letters, uh, certain forms of uh, certificates and whatnot. And these require a bit of skill with Japanese calligraphy, which the little ladies have. So if you don't, if you are the you know poor semi-illiterate graduate of uh, the, the modern Japanese educational system type. who can only type... Um, then you go over and pay a little lady $20 a page to handwrite your customer-facing documents. Very true, and I think that's a good point. But the other thing that I find a little bit concerning and perhaps another reason to not start this one particular business Mm -hmm. is sometimes in Japan, the act of doing something, Mm -hmm. because it is time-consuming, ridiculous... um, Oh, don't even get me started on that. And all the rest (laughs) of it, right? The the act of doing that is what's valuable, Mm -hmm. right? If you were to outsource that to somebody else for $20 a page, that act essentially becomes meaningless is a concern that I would have. We we actually talked about this a little bit in the last podcast where we were talking about getting the busy work done feels good, Mm -hmm. right? And I think it's it's an extension of that where taking the time, putting the effort, even though it's not what is the best for you or the company, it feels good and it feels right. right. Also, seen from the perspective of the customer, I think Jason's right that sometimes the conspicuous expenditure of resources as a way to signal commitment is that's something you see in all societies. There's rituals for it everywhere, right. but it's something that Japan embraces a lot. For example, so. in Japanese politics, if the ruling party is having difficulties, they send out uh, the equivalent of U.S. congressmen to stand at stations in Tokyo outside of a gate, and they get on a soapbox. And just say, you know, this is the Liberal Democratic Party. Please support us. We want to work together for a bright vision of uh, Japan's future. This is the Liberal Democratic Party. Please support us. And the person it's, is basically on loop for three hours. Yeah, and you it's, think, it's, it's very, yeah. And I mean, I do work with political candidates as well for uh, marketing and stuff. And they actually have people whose job is to repeat a speech on a mic on a megaphone as they drive around a city mm-hmm. for eight hours a day. So. This is one of the areas where I take issue with Japan. I love everything about Japan. I love the people, the food, everything about it is great. Noise pollution laws. Where are you on this one, Japan? What the hell is going on, right? The only civilized country, and I say this without doing any research, that the only civilized country that has zero noise pollution laws. They, so, we do. We do have noise pollution laws. Just really? Oh, yeah. yeah I when think you say we do, you mean Japan. Japan, Japan has noise pollution laws. I looked this up because I had a noisy neighbor. I think it's like 80 decibels or something like that, but it's ignored for many, many things. I see. So, uh, Keith, as... As difficult as I'm sure your situation is with your noisy neighbor, I'm a little more concerned about the people who drive around with megaphones <laughs> on Sunday morning trying no, to tell it's, it's us all to vote it's, for people. It's horrible, but uh, for me as well, I, I mean, I'm a foreigner, so therefore I cannot vote in Japan. However, if there was a candidate that said, you know what, 
I'm against no noise pollution laws. I'm going to make noise pollution laws in Japan. I would fully support them, even though that support would be meaningless. But the problem is that person could never be elected because he could never announce his platform to all the people I, that would I think it's potentially elect him. I think it's going to change because this was the first year. This last election was the first year. I don't want to get too much into politics, so let's kind of cut it at this. But this no, was the no, first. We're, 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 we're leaving we're, out sex and religion. <laughs> let's go into politics. Go for it. This was the first year where they could do um, commercials. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you went on YouTube during the elections, there were tons of political commercials. For the first year, they're actually allowed to do um, social media. Maybe so, oh, social media. That. They were allowed to do blogs before, but they could only they had to actually write them themselves. You could not hire a marketing firm to do it. You could have a page. You could have a marketing firm tell you what to do, and then you do it. But you had to actually physically do it. Interesting. And those laws are changing. I helped a political candidate be helping another one with their social media platform this coming election in, when is it, April or whenever. So. Uh-huh. That's cool. probably something to nail down prior to. There's a lot of business opportunities in Japan. In Ogaki, there's very little. It's pro bono. Like, it's, ah, okay. this, this is totally a, hey, you're a friend of my wife, we hang out, I'd love to, I'd love to help you out, let's do some social marketing for you kind of thing. Ah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, no, I haven't done um, Abe's, the Prime Minister's uh, marketing campaign, so. You would probably have to know when the election is to be doing that. Well, there's, so, there's snap elections. You don't know when oh, the election right. <laughs> We could schedule an election for like a week from now. They, they did do that. They yeah. did do that. So I, I do want to ask, um, before we, we are kind of getting long on time, so I do want to be conscious of everyone's uh, listening time because we have had complaints that three hours is a long time for a podcast. So you had always been bootstrapped. And it was a big decision for you to take funding. How has taking funding changed the way you're doing business from being bootstrapped? And keep in mind that people are listening. This is not like, oh, I got $5 million of funding. This was, it was a sizable funding amount, but it's not like you're going off and buying Lamborghinis tomorrow. Um, If I could find a Lamborghini that I could buy a number of without causing problems for (laughs) Lamborghini funding, then yeah, I'd I'd, I'd consider that. But it's it's $750,000 of funding that we have to use in a really good way to either, I suppose, build in the feature set that is very compelling and that enables us to get to the next level of the business, or we have to use that funding to essentially get us to a point where we're totally happy and ready to go out and do a series A of funding, which we're on track to do within three to six months from now, depending on how it all goes. But your question to how did the tenor of the business or how did the atmosphere change before funding and after funding is a really important one and a good one. And this is where it is tremendously important to have good mentors because I had a lot of very dumb questions that I needed answered. And, you know, like, well, if I sign this, does this mean that I don't run the company anymore? Like, like kind of level Mm -hmm. of questions like that. And of course, you know, I've done a lot of reading and I've done a lot of learning and I've gotten a lot of advice from people. And when you do funding, it comes down to two things economics and control. And the extent to which you understand both of those is just very critical when it comes to negotiating those kinds of deals. So for me, I was more concerned actually about the staff and how MakeLeap staff would feel about, you know, suddenly we have a lot of investors because that's kind of confusing. And they would ask all of the questions that I needed to ask to understand really what was going on and how it was going to affect things. So I made sure to talk to everybody and say, listen, we've done very well up until this point. We've, we've managed to get many, many users, many, many customers. It's all very exciting. We've gotten to the point where people are interested to invest money into us. And at this point, you have to know that I'm not going to let some person who could be destructive or cause problems from Eclipse into an area where they could potentially cause problems for us. We've been successful up until this point by doing what we've done. It's not in anybody's interest for us to radically change things and do something completely different in a crazy way when we've achieved really great growth up until this point. So for me, it was critical to number one, understand the impact and how um, investors coming into make leaps, what, what they would expect, how they could offer value and how they could help us get to the next level and it was important for the make leap staff to understand that it's not going to change the tenor of the business and, and in fact if it has changed things in a very serious way that's my fault like i haven't done my job well enough um, so number one I, I wanted to find the right people and number two i wanted to explain 
the process and how we're going to do it. And of course, you know, we have the Make Leaves vision, where we want to go and how we want to get there that needs to be clearly communicated to both staff and investors. And one of the things that I learned is, well, there's actually a great film, I think it's called The Watchman, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a particular character in that film, his name is Rorschach, and he's like this crazy guy, and he gets caught and sent to jail. This is a pa- this is kind of, it sounds like a sidetrack, but it gets really relevant in just a moment, <laughs> I promise you both. So essentially, he ends up having to go to jail. And in the jail, there's many of the criminals that he himself put into the jail, right? And he's standing there and they're like, they can't wait to get their hands on him and to beat him to death and all that kind of stuff. He looked at all the people that are standing in front in the jail and he's saying, you know what? I'm not stuck in here with you. You're stuck in here with me. And that's what I realized about investors. It's like, I will talk about make leaps for literally 24 hours with anybody who wants (laughs) to talk about it, right? So I'm very, very happy to discuss and talk and when people say you know what I've been thinking for make leaps how about we do something like this or you know what do you think of this kind of idea I'm very happy to discuss anything with anybody about that kind of stuff it's, it's my passion that so I sort of realized well hang on a minute we're getting with an angelist syndicate 60 people that are now financially interested in make leaps and they're intelligent because they're investing in make leaps they're clearly cut <laughs> above the standard person right they're great they're investing they know what they're doing they, believe, they know what they're doing they've had plenty of experience so for me it was actually all positives like we never had any issues or problems um, because we had really great mentors and we had great lawyers that put together the deal well we communicated what we're going to do and how we're going to do it you know and typically when it comes to relationship breakdowns that it's just a lack of communication about what everybody is thinking. So we made it a priority to communicate as much as we possibly could. We send out very regular investor updates on what we're doing and how and the current progress and all that kind of stuff. So I would say that we've been able to expand a lot and be able to do many different things with more resources. But the core that's gotten us to this point that's been successful remains unchanged. And that's a good thing. I want to ask something a, a little more um, specific, and you're free to not answer this if you don't want to. Where did you find that you've had the most success with that funding? Is it um, building out your staff? Is it being able to do more marketing? Is it doing more events? So I'm going to tell you guys something that you might not be happy to hear, and it's the same way for all bootstrappers, right? Like we bootstrapped for four years proudly. You know, we were happy we got to this point. Like we we done very well. And we received, I would say, slightly less recognition because we weren't funded and we weren't in the media as much with things like funding announcements. Mm-hmm. As soon as we got funded, about a week afterwards, this one person that I'd known for a long time was like, oh, you got funded? Great. We'd love to do an interview with you. It's like, literally nothing has changed between <laughs> now and when the money hit our bank <laughs> one week ago. Why are you interested to interview me now? And I got kind of... It's the social proof. proof. It's the social yeah, proof. exactly. There's a lot of there's social proof in that. So there's certain things that have gotten easier and better as a result of getting funding, especially from well-known people. So, yeah, but as a bootstrapper, it always frustrated me. It's like, well, come on, we're doing just as well as these guys. In fact, better in many ways, but they're getting more press because they're funded. As I, I, do, well. I do see that a lot with the bootstrapper community, especially some of the communities I'm in. It's... I don't want to say incestual, but it is a, it is kind of a closed circle. Like the people we know, the people we know who are famous, they're famous within our circle. But if I was to talk to someone like at at a newspaper or someone in the larger startup community, they'd be like, I have no idea who that is. Yeah. Right. And it's really interesting because as soon as you get that funding, apparently it's like this open door to social proof. It's, it's it's this open door to, hey, we're a real company. We're a real boy now kind right. of thing. And right. It's frustrating because, like you say, nothing has changed. Yeah, nothing has Literally changed. Nothing. But yeah, <laughs> well, like, well, seven hundred fifty thousand. Yeah, now there's a, that there's, there's an extra number in our bank account now. But other right. than that, like at that point, you haven't even used that money yet, right? Right. Oh. Right. So you know, it's a little bit frustrating if you're operating a business and people are suddenly all more interested in you now that you've gotten funding. But you know, that's part of the game and. At the end of the day, you know, you have to figure out how to make it work with your particular environment, the way that you've set things up. If you can be successful and grow your business and get plenty of media attention without getting funding, more power to you. That's great. In Japan, people tend to respect social proof very much so. Did I ever tell you about the, the optical fiber guy who came to my door trying to sell me optical fiber? 
I heard the story, but it's a good one. It's a good story. I like, I like this one. So I had, I had actually had optical fiber at this time, just not through that company. And he comes to my door and he says, you know, you are the last person in your neighborhood who has not had optical fiber installed. And I thought about that. It's like, I'm surrounded by grandmothers. I'm the youngest person in my neighborhood. The three people inside me, I know for a fact, do not even own a computer. Like, they have no idea what a computer is, most likely. And he's trying to tell me that I'm the last person with optical fiber, which I already have. And I'm just like, this is really interesting. Because I know this works in the U.S. as well. It's it's a very time-tested, proven strategy. It's so effective in Japan. It's not even crazy. I told this to my wife, and she's like, well, we should get optical fiber. Like, we have optical fiber. (laughs) (laughs) No one in the neighborhood has optical fiber but us. Keeping up with the Joneses. Exactly. It's huge. So I'm I'm just realizing now I bought optical fiber after hearing that pitch. (laughs) It works. It It works. works. Although I have to admit, get optical fiber. Get optical fiber like there's just yeah, no we're, reason. We're, you know, we're crying about our, not have it, so you exactly. absolutely get um, it right now. Great reason for all you geeks to live out uh, to come out to Japan. You can come to Ogaki where we have slow, slow one gigabit internet. Two, um, two, two gigabit internet. Yeah, sorry, we we upgraded <laughs> Ogaki. We're we're where Tokyo was in like 1997. Uh, <laughs> what's your what's your gigabit? Speed right I'm not going to share how fast my internet no, connection is. I want to hear. <laughs> hear. How fast is your internet connection? Oh, jeez. I've been meaning to upgrade to one gig, which would be simple and painless and straightforward, but I think I'm still like 300 megabits. Oh, man. Oh, God. That's horrible. Okay. I know. You're I, almost I, American. A couple I know. Years I know. I'm I Australian. And I'm Australian. What the hell? <laughs> I, I was talking to a, a friend who was interning at Gawker, and he's like, oh, man, I'm so happy to be at Gawker because we're, we have a 25 megabit uh, connection. I was like, since I moved to Japan, I've never had a connection that low. Like, <laughs> 12 years ago, when I was on, like, ADSL, it was yeah. faster than 25 megabits. Yeah, yep, was... exactly. 10 years ago, when I had, like, a wireless card, PCMCI card, you literally <laughs> had to slot into stuff. the laptop. Yep. Um, it was yeah, still going at, like, 50. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyhow, so do you think we should uh, be wrapping this up? I, th- I think we're wrapping this one up. Oh, let well, me I don't know. Jason, do you have anything else you want to tell us? Or? Um, I suppose, aside from the confusion where my name is um, Jason, but now pretty much everybody calls me Jay, yeah. and now so I'm right in the, the awkward spot of transitioning my name from Jason to Jay, and so there's still a bit of Jason, a bit of Jay all over the place, but I answer to either. Should, should, I, should, I, should I go for Jay? You can go for whatever you want. Honestly, if you if you make a noise in my direction, I will answer. Okay. Whatever, if you say Jason or Jay, that's fine. Speaking of which, one thing that I'm actually pretty excited about that I should mention that Patrick has been helping me with a bit is I'm working on a new course called Sales for Geeks. And as a geek myself, I mean, people describe me as technical, but I can't code very well. However, I've built and grown two IT businesses, one on the infrastructure side and one on the uh, software SaaS side. So I do know a little bit about sales and communication and social skills I also want to mention that um, Jay is a force of nature when it comes to sales or networking or any sort of talking to people you already always had a great example I've said for the last couple of years that Jason could probably get a meeting with the Japanese Prime Minister simply by showing up at his residence and refusing to be told no by any of the people between there Yeah, and four years ago I I said that like it was a joke, and as I've become more friends with Jason, I think it's probably literally accurate. And at this point, I mean, I should just do it just to prove Patrick's still <laughs> true, and you know, because the Japanese sometimes, you know, if you're being very polite and friendly and you're saying, listen, I just need five minutes of the Prime Minister's time, it might be potentially possible. But at the same time, I also have a sales course to get out. Um, so, yeah, priorities, I suppose. But it's, it's very nice of you guys to to compliment me in that way. And as an Australian, I, I do struggle with compliments and accepting them in general. So, <laughs> so thank you. So what's the name of the course? The name of the course, Patrick, is Sales for Geeks. And you can access more information about this course at salesforgeeks.com. It's <laughs> such a deal. Order now and get a free set of steak knives. Well, there's no steak knife, sorry. Order now, though. So um, you're doing it as a, as a text course, an audio course, video course? Or? Um, I'm thinking video might be a good way forward because in a lot of sales stuff, a lot of it is quite visual. There's a lot of body language, and that factors into sales meetings in general. So I think a, a video course would be a good way to, to do this. 
All right. Sounds yeah, good. So we're looking forward to seeing what you can come out. You can uh, go to the website right now and start to get Jason's advice delivered over email about this as he gets the course put together and then hear about it when it comes out. No commitment later. required. No credit card required. Just no credit sign card. up right now. <laughs> <laughs> so salesforgeeks.com if you're interested at all in, in learning how to sell better. Um, yeah, it'd be great to have you on board. I've got a, a bunch of stories, sales anecdotes and interesting Things that I've learned in a career of uh, 12 years. I started my first company when I was 20. Um, so I've got a lot of stuff to share. And if that's useful or interesting to anybody, um, that's that'd be great. So, so I, I hate to talk Jay up this much. Actually, what am I saying? I love to talk Jay up this much. But <laughs> really, you're up there with like the three best salesmen that I know personally, who I would consider you, uh, Ryan Delk, and uh, Steli Efti. <laughs> like definitely hands down. If the so, three of you got into a room, either... It would cause a, um, a singularity and it would explode or you would take over the world. So it's one or the other. Interesting. Well, that's, that's very, very nice of you to say. And I, all I can do is do my best and toil in the efforts of becoming the person that, you both <laughs> that I am. So um, I, I appreciate both of your, your, your faith in me. Thank you. So, Jason, thanks, thanks, thanks very much for joining things us. Things that are appreciated. We appreciate you guys being here with us for the long, long, long haul. It wasn't that bad. It was about an hour, ten minutes. I was thinking now. more yeah. like the, you know, three years, which it took us. Four, to four, four years. years to four get, years to get up to episode 11. So we ship babies and products faster than we ship podcast episodes, but it's changing. We actually got our two in a month. Oh God, this could be a regular thing now. This, this would be great. Um, tell us what you would, you know, drop either Keith or I an email about this stuff anytime if you have ideas for what we could cover on the podcast or we'll make it more useful for Twitter. you. Or you can yeah. ping us on Twitter. Keith is Harry, H-A-R-I, Senbon, S-E-N-B-O-N. 79. 79. I'm Patty 11 And Jason is on Twitter at? Uh, at Jason Winder, J-S-O-N-W-I-N-D-E-R. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I feel like we're on NPR. I don't know why. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for listening to this edition of This American Life. <laughs> this is your host, Ira Glass. <laughs> Great show. Great show, by the way. All right. Yeah. Thanks very much, guys. Thanks very much. All right. Thank you. Cheers. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.